Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman or non-binary person who works within the media or publishing world, discovering how they turned creativity into a career. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love it if you could rate the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost us in the charts. If you want to support the podcast, you can also buy me a coffee by following the link in the show notes. And you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice as well. This will be the last episode of season one and I'll be back with season two after a short break. My guest on this episode is journalist and author Alia Muru. She is a columnist at Restless and has written for the likes of New York Magazine, The Telegraph and Refinery29. She also wrote the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotypes. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Alia. Thank you for having me. No problem. Just to start things off, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? Yeah, (laughs) so I grew up all over the place. So it's always like an interesting question to get into. I was born in Egypt um, and then I lived there till I was five. And then we lived in Switzerland for three years. And then I moved to London when I was eight, lived here for five years, moved to Egypt for a year and then came back. And I've pretty much been here ever since. So yeah, all over the place, really. But London is home, I I would say now. Mm yeah that's great and so did you did you study in London I did I went to school uh, mostly in London and then just did one year of school in Egypt when I was 12 and then other than that yeah university here I did my master's in London as well so yeah pretty much um, it's been an interesting mix I think but mostly lived here for sure Mm -hmm. when did you know that you wanted to be a journalist I've I've always been a writer, I think, like especially moving around so much. I found that writing, you know, really helped ground me um, and I found it really kind of a way to sort of figure out how I feel and what I'm thinking. And, you know, I I used it as as a release a lot of the time, but I never really, you know, thought that it was something that I could do, you know, professionally. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I when I grew up, when I was at school. And, you know, even when I was doing my university degree, I did sociology and psychology. And I had no idea that I was wanted to be a journalist. Um, and then I remember I finished uni and had kind of like a bit of a freak out. And I was like, what am I going to do now? Where am I going? And at that point, I met um, a guy who ended up being my boyfriend for a few years. And he was in the creative industries. He's a, he was a, he is a music artist. Um, and so, you know, through him, I kind of met all these people and everyone was really passionate and really creative and, you know, making their dreams come true and kind of doing doing what they loved and sort of making it happen. And I think that's when I started to be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, like maybe I could do that as well. And I remember I wrote him a poem and he was like, oh, you're actually really good. Like, why don't you try writing? Because I really had no clue what I wanted to do. And then Mm -hmm. I applied to um, an internship at this publication called Spoon Fed, which was I, or is, um, I guess like a timeout almost, but, you know, very much like live music and, and club nights and all of that kind of stuff. So I started to, you know, intern there and I was doing a lot of um, music journalism. I remember I interviewed Ed Sheeran, like before he was 
as famous as he is mm-hmm. now, like back in the day. And I was like, oh, I really love this. I just, it, it just immediately felt so right. And then I'm a bit of a nerd and I just really like to study. And I guess it helps perhaps in hindsight combat like my imposter syndrome a bit as well. So I applied to a master's in journalism and then I was doing that, you know, alongside writing on a blog and kind of pitching to publications. And I was really just winging it. Like, I feel like I'm still winging it. I feel like that's a huge (laughs) huge part of of maybe being self-employed is just being like oh let me just see what happens if I try mm-hmm. this um and then yeah from there you know I I I kind of as I think as I sort of got to know my voice more um I started to write about different things you know it was as I kind of and like went through my 20s all the new interests like I was like oh actually I'm really interested in fashion And then I did, I would do some like fashion stuff. And then I was like, oh, I'm really interested in this. And I kind of just like followed my um, growing interests and my gut. And you spoke about you did that internship. Have you always been um, self-employed or have you worked in in staff roles as well? Or has it been a mix? I've never worked like a long-term staff role but I've done a lot of part-time um you know so I was Mm in-house at Grazia for a few months um I did um the debrief Mm. um which has sadly shut now but when they first launched I did a lot of work with them and I would you know do the weekend shifts there and I would cover like if someone was away I would often cover for them Um, So that was really helpful for sure in terms of kind of understanding the inner workings, because when you're on the outside, like just working from home, coming up with pitches and emailing to editors and never having been like in the office, Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot more scary because you're just like, oh, my God, who are these people? How do they work? You know, what does a typical day look like? So I think it was really helpful for me that... um, you know, I did spend quite a lot of time in the offices, even if I wasn't like ever a full-time employee. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any advice for people that are trying to land those those kind of jobs? I think, you know, honestly, people probably say this all the time, but social media is such an amazing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really kind of, especially now, you know, there's so many newsletters um that sort of send out like pitch requests and send out like open like internships um there's so many accounts that you can follow that kind of give an insight into the inner workings of things and you know again like I said sort of shout out about roles I remember the when I, I got I got an internship at Grazia which then ended up stemming into loads of different things and the way that I got that is I was following the digital editor on Twitter. Like, I think Instagram didn't even really exist then. God, I make myself sound really old. But <laughs> um, And I saw that she was giving a talk at this event. So, and it was like free talk. So I went and then I went up to her after and I just was so nervous, but kind of pushed through and introduced myself. And, you know, I was like, I really love what you guys do. But if there's ever an opportunity, let me know. And then I followed up on Twitter And as luck would have it, I think someone had just dropped out or something had happened and there was an internship that was starting the next week. So I was front of her mind because I had gone up to her, I had followed up, I had tweeted her. So that's how I got the internship. So I think, 
you know, I always say this and, you know, obviously there's a way to do it. I think it's a mutual exchange. You're not just like asking people for things all the time, but I think it, it you know, not using, utilizing social media is silly because it's literally at our disposal. You can so easily find out who the editors are. You can so easily build a rapport with them. And it's something that I do all the time, even in terms of like, when I wanted to, when I wanted to write my book, I did a lot of research into, you know, all the agents and what the kind of things that the agents like to receive. And I would follow them all on social media. And even then, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I feel like even then, maybe they'll recognize your name if, if you then pop up in their inbox, you know, or if they're like, oh, asking for like a restaurant recommendation, you can kind of just like tweet them or comment on their photo. And then that sort of builds a bit of, um, yeah, maybe they recognize your name. Maybe they're more likely to open your email. Maybe they're more likely to kind of be able to humanize you, which I think is always really important. Definitely. Like there's also just so many opportunities that are just um, put out on Twitter that aren't, you know, available on Google or, or wherever, like, definitely if you if you follow a certain amount of people on Twitter you kind of become part of this journalism bubble and you get these kind of you're aware of these opportunities that you might not have been aware of otherwise um and yeah I think yeah definitely I think if you are liking tweets of editors and things like that you definitely will be it's more likely they'll recognize you and that could just be a difference between them opening an email or not opening one so yeah yeah, that's really good advice um you you do a lot of freelance writing how how do you normally get that work do you do a lot of pitching or do do you have regular gigs yeah I do a lot of pitching and I actually um posted on my Instagram story the other day I have this like spreadsheet Mm -hmm. and I color code it so when I get the pitch it's green when I don't it's red if they don't answer me it's orange or something like that and I had read somewhere someone suggested like a freelance journalist suggested that you do this and she was saying that you know the acceptance rate I think it's something like 10 percent like it's Mm -hmm. very low and so I wanted to share that because I wanted to be like it's really like it's really about perseverance yeah um so I think yeah a lot of it a lot of it is pitching and kind of not um descending into like a puddle of despair when people say no or when they don't answer because it's not personal you know and I think yeah so a lot of my work is is pitching um coming up with ideas fleshing out you know what the pitch should look like what are the kind of you know, maybe I need to do a bit of research to kind of prove that this is a trend or, you know, whatever it might be. And then kind of figuring out who the best, what publication might, you know, this work for. Um, And then figuring out the best person to email and then following up and, you know, all of that. And I think one thing that's really important, and I think that's really helped me is doing loads of reading. So, you know, I spend a lot of time browsing different publications you know I read a lot of magazines and I think that's a really good way of getting an understanding of the kind of content that each publication likes or you know what their writing style Mm -hmm. is um can you swear like whatever it might be (laughs) yeah I feel like yeah it's really helpful to to really embed yourself 
in in the world and in um, in all the different kinds of publications so that you know who to pitch to when you have an idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And what kind of how do you normally go about finding stories yourself? Uh, a lot of a, it, many different ways. I think, you know, either something will have happened in the news and then, you know, there's something off the back of that that I might be able to offer an opinion on, or maybe it's a conversation that's coming up really often in my friendship groups. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Recently, I've been getting a lot of um, story ideas from TikTok. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I recently wrote an article for Vice about this trend called grip talk, which was basically women like clenching and, and releasing their pelvic floors. And I was like, oh my God, this is so empowering. And that's, I wish I had had something that I like that when I was younger, when I was just made to feel so ashamed about myself, mm-hmm. about everything. Um, so I was like, oh, that's really interesting that this is a trend. So I wrote an article about that and I reached out to, again, using social media, a lot of the girls who were posting these videos and I interviewed them for the piece. Um, So I think it's really about kind of paying attention Mm -hmm. to the world and to yourself. And obviously it depends what kind of journalist you are, right? And what kind of stories you want to write about. Um, But for me, I think what really interests me is the way that we are in the world and the kind of pop culture, social media, um, female women trends. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting you were saying that about TikTok because I've noticed that recently. There's so many stories about TikTok and I think it's really become this kind of portal to the rest of like the culture and what's going on is like really just there. Um, Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, When you're pitching stories, do you normally... Do you normally have um, sources lined up or do you just say, you know, I will speak to this kind of person? Uh, It depends. Like if you really need a source to sell the story, then you like I'll kind of figure that out. I think what's difficult is what I found difficult is if I'm pitching like, oh, an interview with an author or a celebrity of some sort I always find that a bit tricky where I'm like Mm -hmm. should I pitch the story first and then go to the person and say I've got this story commissioned will you speak to me or do I speak to the person first and say would you speak to me if I was to get a commission Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's quite difficult sometimes being yeah it's like freelance because you're just like who like which side do I go to first kind of thing because you don't want to you don't want to let either one down you don't want to then say to the publication oh sorry actually they're not willing to speak to me once you've got the commission and then yeah so that's a bit tricky but in more general more general terms I'll um, just give a brief overview of the kinds of conversations that I'm gonna have Mm -hmm. and the kinds of people that I imagine I'll speak to but it's a balance because it already takes a lot of time to put a pitch together. Um, So it's kind of figuring out what is the best use of your time, basically, in order to make it as good as can be, but without overkilling where, you know, maybe you should be spending that time doing something else or chasing another pitch or writing another pitch. So it's kind of like, how much work do you do before you get the commission? Mm -hmm. And how much work do you need to do to even get the commission and sort of finding the balance of that? yeah that was interesting what you were saying about um pitching interviews 
is that is that something that you do a lot you'd like have someone in mind and you you get in touch yeah you know when I first started out my journalism career I was doing a lot of um, music journalism and Mm -hmm. at that point I would have you know connections with editors so maybe sometimes they would say oh will you interview this person so that was a bit easier and then I took like a big break from or like let's say step back from everything when I was writing my book and I think at that point you know I really changed um what I wanted to talk about I think writing the book really changed me as as a human um so now I have like a big focus on you know championing Middle Eastern voices and stories and I feel like there's a real really cool research like surge happening of Middle Eastern creativity around the world Mm -hmm. so now now I'm kind of dabbling back in doing these interviews where for a long time I didn't so it's kind of yeah refiguring out how that works I've been doing a few um I did a couple of cover stories actually my first ever cover story which was really exciting for GQ Middle East and that was you know finally after all this time of begging editors them reaching out to me and asking me to do the interview so that was really cool and you know I think that's like the holy grail of journalism is when editors start to reach out to you Mm -hmm. that's just like the dream yeah do you think you've found that now more than when you've like kind of found a niche Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think, you know, again, using social media to kind of promote your work and to sort of create Mm -hmm. a um, portfolio in a way, I think is also really helpful because then you kind of build a bit of a name or a voice, you know, a particular voice that maybe editors want to tap into for their publication or they have, you know, a particular person in mind who they think that you would do a good job interviewing or profiling which is what happened with the GQ Middle Mm -hmm. East story um so yeah I think again like finding finding a niche is always really helpful even just for yourself because then you're like you know you don't want to be right you don't want to be like scrabbling for stories and kind of trying to write things that you don't really have an opinion on right Mm -hmm. like I feel like the, the the story is so much better when you actually care about it and when you actually have something that you want to say. And I think once you know what your niche is, it's a lot easier to figure out what those stories are. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you were saying before as well about um, pitching um, interviews. Do you have any advice for someone that might think, oh, they'd be a great person to profile and they don't know how to approach that? They don't know how to pitch it to the editor, you mean? Yeah. I think it would be, you know, again, like timely things are always, you know, is there a new release coming out? Do they have a new album? Is there a new book coming out? Like all of that obviously plays a big part. And I think a lot of publications need or want things to be timely. Um, So I think that's number one. And then also, what is it that is so interesting about this? You know, is there a wider thing happening in the world that this person is speaking to or contributing to with their offering? Um, What are the kind of commonalities that maybe you have with the person that you can kind of tap into into and, and, and have a conversation that someone else might not be able to have, essentially? I think that's always when it's most powerful, especially because, you know, a lot of publications have smaller budgets now for freelance. So it's like, well, why should I have you do this rather Mm -hmm. than someone who's in-house? 
So I think that's always the key to selling a story, whether it's an interview or whether it's um, just an, any kind of opinion piece or any kind of article. It's really about being like, okay, what what is your unique take on this? Like, what are you bringing to the table? Why should it be you to write this, essentially? I mm -hmm. think it's always the kind of main question that you should seek to answer. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, when you're pitching things, what's your what's how do you typically lay out a pitch um so I'll typically again it depends but I'll typically sort of be like you know I this I noticed this or and then kind of situate it in sort of a wider you know world maybe there's some statistics that you can add that kind of prove that what you're saying is valid um and then like in this essay I will or whatever it might be and kind of give like a really brief idea of the kind of points that you're trying to make um and how long you imagine the piece will be mm -hmm. and sort of a brief idea of like when you could get it to them yeah that's fine like quite short I would say you know like yeah. no one has time to sit and read like a essay already so it's kind of like maybe three two three paragraphs mm -hmm. um and it's it, you know I read something once and it was saying like if you can't explain it in two paragraphs then do you know what you're trying to say? So I think it's kind of like really figuring out what is the crux of this? Like, what is the point that I'm actually trying to make? And mm -hmm. then just keeping it quite brief. Yeah, that's great. Um, you've also written for publications across the pond, like New York Magazine. Do you have any advice for how British writers can start writing for American publications or vice versa? I think it's really, I honestly don't even know if it makes a difference where the publication is based, mm -hmm. only in terms of like actually invoicing and having to fill out tax forms and that kind of stuff. But, you know, obviously there are things like I wouldn't necessarily pitch a story about like how people in LA are feeling about COVID, you know, because I have no clue. But if it's like a global trend, which I think so many things are now, mm -hmm. I don't think that it's like, this is only how UK people feel, or this is only how US people feel when it's like a cultural thing. I think there's so many, you know, commonalities that we have, again, thanks to social media, thanks to the internet, like we're all laughing at the same memes, right? So I feel like, honestly, I don't even know if it makes a difference. Um, mm -hmm. I think if it's, if it's, cross-cultural enough or universal enough perhaps is a better word then it doesn't matter and, and it's the same process you kind of figure out what's your pitch who's the editor and you you just email them the same way that you would an editor down the road mm -hmm. in terms of um agreeing on payment do you normally have do you have like a rate or do you ask them what their rate is Usually I will, I won't say anything in my pitch. And then mm -hmm. if the editor, you know, the best editors are the ones who respond and tell you, yeah, great. <laughs> um, this is how much we can pay you. Yeah. And that's always the best way because that's how it should work. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, sometimes you negotiate. I'm only just starting to get better at negotiating because I think for a long time I was like, thank you, <laughs> uh, which I feel like a lot of, a lot of, people and maybe women especially feel not to play into that stereotype but um yeah I'm only just getting better at negotiating and you know there's so much conversation around like should you write for free should you work for free and at this point you know I'm 10 years deep I wouldn't 
but I definitely did a lot of writing for free at the beginning. Um, and I think, you know, obviously I was privileged in that I was able to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like not starve, I mean, but then at the same time, it actually, I feel quite grateful for all of those opportunities in terms of like, that really helped me figure out what my voice is. And that kind of really helped me become a better writer. Um, to that end, I also had a blog, which I don't have anymore, but for a long time I was blogging. And I remember I went when I, the first day of my master's and the teacher was basically like, if you don't have a blog, go home. And I was like, whoa, that's Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I understood what he meant in terms of like, you have a, a tool at your disposal, essentially, where you can write and you can practice your voice and you can, you know, gain an audience or whatever. So if this is really what you want to be doing, what, like, why not? Um, and I think it's actually very good advice, even just in terms of getting used to having your work be read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you're also a columnist at Restless. Um, how did that come about? How did that come about? I think, um, how did it come about? I'm trying to remember now. I've been a columnist there for about a year and they are only just about over a year old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think how it happened is they reached out to me when I was doing like press for my book mm-hmm. and they wanted to do something with me around that. And then I think I wrote, I'm trying to remember, I might be wrong, but I think I wrote something for them and they were like, great, you know, we're looking for columnists. Like, would you be up for being a columnist basically? And I was like, fab, great. And like I said, it's, it's, I love restless. I love what they stand for. I love their content. And then, like I said, it's also always Holy grail when, you don't need to be doing all the pitching and when you kind of just mm-hmm. have like a regular thing. So, you know, every month I can kind of write about whatever I want. Um, and I have like same deadline every month and that's like a really nice just thing to have. Um, so it's been so great. I've been really enjoying, I've been really enjoying working for them or with them. Yeah. What kind of advice would you have for someone that wants to be a columnist? Like, you know, do you have any advice for how you think of what you're going to write about each month? It's similar to how I come up with story ideas, I think, although, you know, I'll spend a lot of, I'll also spend a lot of time looking at the Restless website. What are the kind of things that they've posted this month? You know, I wouldn't want to write something similar or something that they've already got, which is also very important to do when you're just pitching in general is, mm-hmm. you know, going on the website. Have they done anything similar? It happened to me once and they were like, we've already done this. And I was like, oh, it's really very would have been very simple for me to have to have avoided that um but in terms of advice and of becoming a columnist I feel like you know if you don't ask you don't get as well so you know maybe you've written a few pieces for a publication and you've got like a good rapport with the editor and then you can kind of just drop an email and be like you know would you be interested in having like more regular you know Mm -hmm. pieces from me do you have root like are you interested in maybe having me as a columnist and just asking like especially if you've already you know worked with them and they know your style and they know that they can count on you and that you'll deliver then it's worth the question yeah definitely um when you're writing as well 
Um, obviously, columns can be, you know, they incorporate your own life. Do you ever get kind of self-conscious or anxious when you write about yourself? I feel like I've definitely gotten really used to it. Um, mm-hmm. And my book is part memoir, part cultural commentary. So that's mm-hmm. like really heavily about myself in ways that I had never, like I write about sex. I write about, you know, especially things that as a Middle Eastern woman, I'm not supposed to be talking about. Um, so I think that for me really just kind of shed that final layer, yeah. but it's something that I've been practicing for a long time. And I think what's always, what I've always felt found really empowering and kind of encouraging is really no matter what you say, like you could say anything and there's going to be people who relate and who resonate and who feel, you know, better about themselves because of the fact that someone else in the world feels like they do, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've had that so many times where I've read something and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not a freak. Like, Oh my God, you feel like someone else feels like that. Great. That means that I'm normal and this is fine. You know, there's something really empowering about that. So I think, you know, even on my social media platforms, like I, I try really to just be I hate the word like authentic, like it's so overused now, but I really think that if you're just yourself and you're honest, other people will resonate and that is not as good for you and good for them. Definitely. You as well, you were talking about on social media, uh, being authentic. You've got a big following on Instagram. You've got 20K followers. Um, Do you have any advice on how to grow that kind of following? Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a funny one because definitely when I was a bit younger, I cared so much and I was like, oh, my mm-hmm. God, I really want more followers. And like I really kind of like based my worth on how many people were following me, which I think a lot of people do. And, you know, how many mm-hmm. likes and, you know, all of these things really matter. And I feel like when I stopped caring is when it actually like more people started to follow me. And again, I think it's really just about being yourself and providing a value, I guess, in a way as well. Like, and I guess that goes back to what we were saying about the importance of having a niche, um, you know, again, as authentic as someone might be online, it's it's never like every single detail about you because that's impossible. You literally can't be, you can't show everything. It's just literally not feasible. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of like, okay, cool. So how, how is this helpful? Like, you know, I post myself without makeup, which sounds really basic, but you know, some people don't feel like they're able to do that. And I just kind of feel like, you know what? Yeah, just be yourself. And that is the um, best thing that you can do. Because if you're sort of trying to please everyone, you'll end up not pleasing yourself. And in that sense, you're also not pleasing anyone because it's just not really how it works. So I think the more um, the more you figure out what you're trying to say and who you are and, you know, again, what your value is, like what you can bring to the table, the that's what matters. And I, I, I try not to care anymore about like my feed needs to look a certain way or like these things need to matter. I kind of just think of it as like, yeah, like my portfolio and mm-hmm. my way. It, it's a bit complicated because so much of what I write is has me in it. So I think it's it, sometimes it's a bit difficult to separate like work me and me me. Um, and then I, and so I think it's just kind of 
whatever feels right that day basically I don't know if I've made any sense just now I'm still trying to figure out the whole no yeah that's that's great um I think the best kind of media people accounts on Instagram have a mix of like themselves and their work because I think everyone on Instagram is well most people on Instagram are just trying to kind of emulate that fashion influencer thing and it's like if everyone's doing that then it's not it's probably not going to take off for you, yeah. you know? So if you are like a, a media person, it probably helps to be posting your work on like the main grid and things like that. Yeah, for sure. And like, what are you, you know, what are your thoughts on this new TV show? Like whatever it might be kind of just having like a, a engaging um, platform. And I was listening to this really good podcast actually the other day and they were talking, it was, um, the founders of this like talent agency in the Middle East. And they were basically saying, you know, no one as you, cause you were referencing, you know, the fashion bloggers who post like nice photos and nice clothes and like, that's great, but that's not enough. But like, they're bringing mm-hmm. more to the table. The ones who are really successful are the ones who are, who have a niche within that. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, again, like figuring out who you are and what you're trying to say basically and having that be, having that lead I think always mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah definitely um you are also the author of the greater freedom life as a middle eastern woman outside the stereotypes can you talk me through uh what the book is about yeah so the book is um part memoir part cultural commentary and it's basically about all the things that as a woman um my two cultures have told me I should be and should want and should look like and should feel and essentially me kind of trying to unpick all of that so mm-hmm. every chapter you know has a different subject so like when you learn how you're supposed to look when you learn who you're supposed to be when you're not when you're not supposed to like sex like whatever it might be um, and then kind of using my life experience to highlight essentially the points I'm trying to make and the patriarchy on both sides um, and what that tells us and then I interview a lot of other Middle Eastern women as well just to kind of add their voices to it and um, I've got a lot of research in there so it's it's interesting because that's kind of that's my that's my journalism style anyways Mm -hmm. Um, so it was interesting to flesh that out into like an 80,000 word thing which I've obviously never written anything that long before but it was really I think there's so many reasons why I felt the need to write this book and part of it was just the very narrow ideas of what it means to be a Middle Eastern woman Um, you know we're supposed to be oppressed we're supposed to be like all of these things and that's not my experience but then also we again we live in a patriarchal world and I think I really wanted to highlight that and the sort of tug of war sometimes that I feel between cultures and as I got older and I kind of you know got better at using my my voice um, I'd been writing for a few years professionally at that point and I kind of felt like it's really important for me to contribute to this conversation because it's happening without me anyways so I really need to kind of, yeah, add my voice. And, you know, this is my job anyway. And my family are very supportive. They're not going to be like, oh my God, why are you airing our dirty laundry? Which for a lot of people, that is what would be said. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I kind of just wanted to um, 
add my my voice and my story and kind of provide a different narrative how did you start working on the book like did you approach agents yourself yeah so I um decided I wanted to write the book and I'm always really intense about everything so then I went on this like huge mission of figuring out okay what the hell happens now Um, So I did a lot of research and I googled basically every single agency in the UK and went through, um, you know, on the website, the internet is amazing, like on the website, it will have each agent that works at that agency, what are the kind of, you know, things that they like to work on, what are the sort of topics that they find interesting, and I made this huge spreadsheet, and then to email them, I basically wrote a proposal which you know obviously improved a lot once I actually got the agent but I essentially did a lot of research into what goes into a proposal and for it's different with non-fiction versus fiction because fiction you kind of have to have written the book already mm-hmm. whereas non-fiction you just need to have like a really thorough breakdown of what's going to go into the book like chapter by chapter um, what are the kind of things it's like a very very long pitch basically per chapter um, So I put that together and then I emailed it to loads of agents and like when you pitch an editor, a lot of them didn't answer. Um, Some of them didn't get it. They were like, oh, you know, but you don't really sound that Middle Eastern. And I'm like, cool, you've you've missed missed the point, but that's great. Um, You know, so there's a lot of back and forth in terms of also finding someone it's not just you begging people it's also you being like are you a good fit for me as well Mm -hmm. so it's again finding the balance of that um so yeah I pitched loads and loads and loads and there were a few that got back to me and loved it and you know really wanted to meet up with like just see you know more um so then there was one in particular Imogen who is my agent now So I went to meet up with her. She loved it. She helped me improve the proposal hugely, massively. Um, And then how it works is the agent will take that proposal and send it out to, you know, editors across different publishing houses that they think will be interested in your book. Um, So then there was another waiting game, (laughs) lots of no's, lots of no replies, a few yeses um, and then I eventually signed with Amazon Public well the imprint an imprint called Little A which is an imprint of Amazon Publishing which was really cool actually because the book came out worldwide immediately which is usually not the case usually you have to sign to different publishers Mm -hmm. in different territories and that felt really nice because I felt like there were so well when I wrote the book there was no other book that I felt that was like it so you know, it felt important to me that it should be able to be read as far and as wide. Yeah. I didn't think it was just like UK people who were going to get it, you know? Mm-hmm. When you were pitching agents, were you pitching people at the same time or did you go one by one? Yeah, at first I was going one by one and I'd send it to one and I would like wait for weeks and I would mm-hmm. be like, oh my God, why aren't they answering? And then I kind of realized that that's not the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I then started, I didn't want to pitch everyone at the same time because that just also felt a bit overwhelming and like, imagine they all say yes, which obviously (laughs) is never going to happen. But anyway, so I kind of did it in bunches. um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, that sort of made the waiting process feel a bit less annoying because I felt like I was actively 
doing something, Mm -hmm. even if it was like for a week, like every Monday I'd pitch four, you know? Um, But I definitely feel like with journalism, I never pitched one idea to more than one place Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I'll pitch to, you know, one place. And then if it's not super time sensitive, I'll give them a week and then I'll follow up a week later. If it is super time sensitive, then I'll pitch somewhere else. And then if the first place answers and says they want it and the second place has already taken it, that's always quite awkward. But if it's super time sensitive, I feel like it's kind of understood why you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah with a with a book I would say definitely hedge your bets mm-hmm. yeah that's helpful and um with non-fiction obviously different from fiction because you, you've not written the book yet um but do you think you need to be like an expert in that field to write the book I think you're gonna want to really care about it because it's mm-hmm. gonna take you a long time <laughs> It's going to take you a long time and a lot of work to write the book. It's not that you have to be an expert, but you have to care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Had you written had you written a lot about your experiences and publications before that? Or was it kind of like a new venture for you? I'd written about my experience, but never bringing in my culture, which mm-hmm. is so weird to say now. Um, but I had never really been like, I had never felt like it was a relevant part of the conversation. And then I think as I started to realize more and more that it was, and the sort of impact that it was having on my life and all of that in every single regard, I think that's when I felt like, okay, I really need to write this book. Yeah. Um, but so it wasn't foreign to me, but it wasn't topics that I had addressed before. Mm-hmm. when you were writing the book um so did you start writing after you got a book deal yes yeah and how long would you say it, it would take to write to, that kind of book um I did nothing other than write the book mm-hmm. so that's like to you know I, I I always applaud people who are like full-time jobs and then you write in the morning and at night and I'm just like oh my god well done because yeah I don't like, wow, the dedication to do that. Um, So I didn't. I literally just spent all day, all day. Like I didn't leave. I didn't see any. I basically had lockdown before lockdown because Mm -hmm. I literally didn't leave my house for about a year. Um, But so the first draft, I think I did May till September. So really not that long. And then there was an editor who was so great who was so great like really I don't know what I would have done without her and she kind of was like okay what did you mean here go a bit deeper here maybe this is not relevant you know so she kind of really poked at all the things that needed to be poked at and then I did another draft which I'm trying to think how long that took maybe like five months something like that um and then a lawyer had to read it because it was non-fiction so like is anyone gonna want to sue you like Mm -hmm. just to make sure that I'm not saying anything probably like bad or insulting anyone um and then I did like another whiz through so there's a lot of back and forth a lot a lot and I think you know I always say like I think it must have taken about like from inception of the idea to having the book in my hands I think it was like almost 
three years yeah two and a half years something like that yeah that's a really long time um it yeah it's just such a long process you know um do you have any advice for uh, aspiring non-fiction authors hmm I think I feel like I really want to say like your story is valid because I feel like that's something that you know we all struggle with so much is like will anyone care like is this important and it's a conversation that I'm having with so many of my friends now who you know one of them in particular is a great journalist and she wants to write a book and and I'm like do it do it 100 and there's a lot of like oh but who's gonna care and I'm like people people are gonna care like we need, you know, I think especially as women, especially as women of color, there are really so few stories. And I always say, like, it's easier to be yourself if you can see yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, you have to write a book about your life or whatever. But I think that the more viewpoints we have, the the better. Um, and there are, it's lacking. It's seriously, seriously, seriously lacking from women of color a hundred percent there are not enough books um so I think it's kind of like yeah trust yourself trust your voice trust that it's important um you know for me I definitely I wrote the book that I wished had existed when I was growing up and that for me was a real kind of driving force even on the days And there were many of them where I was like, what the hell am I doing? I was like, no, 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 I'm writing this for me because I needed it. So I'm going to trust that someone else needs it too. Yeah, I feel like that's so interesting as well, touching on what you were saying earlier about um, if you're writing something personal and you think, oh, who's going to relate to this? There's always someone that will. Um, Yeah, just whenever um, I read something and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can totally relate to that. Um, yeah there's always going to be other people that have the same experience as you so that's definitely true about telling your own story because there's always going to be people that relate to it yeah and I think it will even surprise you how many and who they are yeah like you know obviously my book is very much about being you know a Middle Eastern woman in the world but I've had so many messages from people you know Catholic people women and Italian like like all different ethnicities all different countries all different cultures who have resonated and and related Mm -hmm. to the topics that I bring up in the book so I think it's you know really important as well there are all these like fake and false divisions um, between cultures between religions between all of this stuff when the reality is I think there's a lot more that we have in common than we do different Mm -hmm. and the more kind of honest we are and the more we sort of talk about these things and and share our stories the more I think that we're all going to realize that yeah definitely and you also have a newsletter uh, the greater conversation did that kind of come off the back of the book yeah so I popped the book came out October 2019 And, you know, I did quite a few months of promo and all of that kind of stuff and really sort of trying to find my feet again in terms of like, okay, now I want to get back into journalism because I haven't done it in ages. Like, what are the kind of things that I want to talk about? What are, who who am I now that I've written this book? Because I really felt like, I felt like post-publication blues majorly. Um, So I was kind of trying to figure all of that out. And then lockdown happened, which was 
wild, is, is wild. Um, and I had just been receiving so many messages, like I said, from all of these different women. And I really wanted to, and like people in my DMs, like, this is why I relate. And they're like, literally telling me their life story, like in my DMs. And I kind of felt like, you know what, I really want to have a platform or just a Mm -hmm. space where I can share these stories and where we can kind of continue the conversation that I've, that I was having in the book. Um, So that's really where it came out of. And it's been in April, it will be a year since it's launched. And it's just been so fun to work on and just like such a lovely um, staple of my of my weeks in lockdown as well, because everything's just been really all over the place, obviously. So it's been really nice to kind of have something to hold me accountable. Every Thursday, mm-hmm. there's a newsletter coming out. Um, and I've been getting so many submissions for it, like so many people just so happy to share their stories and to kind of, again, contribute to this conversation that I feel like is really lacking. Like, you know, especially being Middle Eastern, like there's like, okay, black, white, Asian, like we're not included in the conversation at all. Like we've only just recently been added to the census in the UK, mm-hmm. in the US, Arabs are not on the census at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, just having a space for us, and again, so many people from different cultures are, are still resonating. It's not that it's like, you know, no one else can be a part of this, but it's just sort of carving out that space to have these conversations. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, can you just talk me through what kind of things you normally talk about in the newsletter? All sorts of things. Um, so yesterday I wrote about my period. <laughs> And like, you know, the shame around periods and how Mm -hmm. that contributes to so many different things. Um, A few weeks ago, there was a really powerful guest piece from an anonymous um, woman who lives in Dubai, who is 31. And she's in the process of, well, she's just divorced her husband and they've got two kids together. And there was a lot of, you know, in in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, the, the kind of divorce and custody laws are highly prioritizing of men Mm. so you know in some countries a boy can only live with his mom I think until he's like seven I might don't quote me on like the numbers I'm not sure but it's like a young age and then they have to by law go live with their dad right which is wild yeah Um, so she had you know a lot of custody battles with her ex-husband about this so she wrote a really honest and and really moving piece about that um it, it can really it can really vary like there's mm-hmm. all sorts of all sorts of different topics yeah amazing um you also you've worked with brands like Keds, Nike and Absolute how did those kind of partnerships come about uh I think really just through like being visible online mm-hmm. um and then people sort of reaching out so Keds have been really great to work with they reached out to me for I think it was international women's day maybe it was a couple of years i think it was a couple of years ago now so they came to my house and we did like a whole photo shoot which i loved because i actually really enjoy being in front of the camera um so that was a lot of fun and then when i was in la i did i spoke on a panel with them so again i think the more the more you share who you are and the more you have your niche and the more you Mm -hmm. kind of promote yourself which I know we've all find really uncomfortable but it's very important to do I think so it's kind of 
the, yeah, the more you do that, the more, the more things come to you as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that how you kind of, do you think being visible as well as that, what's led you to be, you know, you've spoken a lot of panels and, and guested on, on radio as well. Is that just from being visible on social media? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, you know, I would like to think that also what I'm saying is good and like that I have, like that I'm talented too. Um, but I think it's like pushing or just showing that, um, you know, no one's going to just come and like find you like no one's going to just stumble upon you alone in your house when you have no trait, when there's no trace of you, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like yeah. the more you kind of share what you're doing, the more someone who's searching for someone who speaks about the things that you do or for someone who, whatever it might be, they're more likely to stumble across you. Definitely. Absolutely. I think that's definitely the case just in journalism generally, like the more you put yourself out there, the more things that are going to come back your way. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's so difficult to do that. And I've spoken a few times throughout the course of this conversation of like perseverance and Mm -hmm. you get so many no's and, you know, it can be, it can be really disheartening. Yeah. But I think it's, it's, again, it's like, the more you put yourself out there, the more chances you have to succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what is it like you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take? Yeah, absolutely. Just to finish things off, what are your kind of top tips for someone who wants to, to break into journalism? Get on social media and follow everyone, like follow everyone who's relevant engage in conversation all of that read 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 as much as you can you know read go to the news agent doodle there and like flick through the magazine (laughs) get subscriptions like go online like whatever read um and pay attention i think as well like pay attention to the things that you care about to themes that keep coming up in your life or in conversations with your friends um pay attention to what's happening in the world to the extent that your mental health allows especially when the world feels a bit bleak but yeah pick up patterns I think and Mm -hmm. think about what it is that you can contribute to the conversation I think that was journalist and author Alia Muru you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Ali Amuru. This was the last episode of season one and I'll be back with season two soon. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support the podcast, you can give a small donation on Coffee, which is linked in the show notes. You can find the podcast on social media at She's Creative Pod and I'm on social media at underscore Clara Hutch. See you next time.